The reading for today is from Matthew 2, verses 1 to 12. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judah in the days of Herod the king, behold, the wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who shall shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me, the, me word that I may come to and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated, and as you are seated, we're going to begin... Uh, the message this morning with some prayer. Uh, pray with me. Father, we come before you this morning and uh, we love you. We are struck by the way that you have come to earth, taken on human flesh, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, God incarnate to, to suffer and to die for us that we might be saved. Lord, I just ask that you would help us now by your grace and by your goodness to see you in your goodness, to see you in your grace, that our eyes would be open to, to worship Jesus as the wise men did. Lord, we want to know you more. Help us to, to do that now. Uh, we need your help, and we ask for it. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, uh, I'm here. I'm excited. My name's Brant. Um, I'm excited to preach to you this, this message, this Advent message from the second chapter of Matthew. And if you're new here, I just want to welcome you. Welcome. It's great to have you. If you're a visitor, come with a family member. Welcome to you. Uh, we just are excited to, to be here together this Christmas season to look at the way that the Bible talks about the coming of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And this season, for our Advent, we're walking through those first two chapters of Matthew. We're going through these particular stories about Jesus. Uh, we're walking through the, uh, the birth narrative. That's what Jake taught us last week. Um, this week, we're going to go through uh, the Wiseman narrative. Um, and then, actually, the, the last week, we're going to jump back in time, and Fred's going to help us through the genealogy. But maybe some of you here this morning genuinely question, maybe there's a couple people here, I don't know, who, who question, what's the wisdom of talking about 2,000-year-old Christmas stories at Christmas time? And you're saying, hey, Brent, look, you know, I hear the word Christmas, but all I see is my floundering bank account, and I'm looking at my expenses this month, and I'm worried about how I'm going to pay the bills in January. Or maybe you look at this conflict and the turmoil in this world. You look at some conflict between Canada and China that's been happening this week. And you're thinking, what does, what does this have to do with anything? 
You know, I see murder, I see hatred, I see strife. Are these stories a little quaint? Maybe you relate more with the words of, of Bono, the lead singer of U2, in his song, Peace on Earth, than you do with the words of Silent Night. And Bono said this, he said, Jesus, in the song you wrote, the words are sticking in my throat. Peace on earth. Hear it every Christmas time, but hope in history won't rhyme. So what's it worth, this peace on earth? And that's where you're at this morning. And the question is, is peace on earth a discordant melody to sing at Christmas time? Are we as Christians here in this room, people with our heads in the sand, and just ignorantly talking with this hopeful, wistful voice about Jesus. Is that what's happening? Do these two chapters in the Gospel of Matthew matter at all? And I want to say to you this morning, I want to, I want to try and convince you, they matter more than anything. They matter more than you can believe. But maybe not in the way that you're accustomed to thinking that things matter in this digital age when everything is immediate and at your fingertips and when you want to watch another episode, you click next. And you click next again. And then you will welcome the new millennium, you know, as you've watched through several different shows. Well, this Advent season reminds us that Christmas is about the arrival of God's reign in Jesus Christ. But there is a bittersweetness to Advent. And the bittersweetness is this, is that it's often at Christmas time that we're painfully aware that Jesus has come, but the, the perfect peace on earth that we're waiting is going to come when he comes again. That we're living in the time between the times. That his first coming anticipates the second one. But the thing is, Christmas matters like crazy for everyone in this room because it's only here in these stories that we see that God invades the bleak midwinter of the dark of humanity's cold heart with a, a message of hope, with peace that's begun now and will culminate when he returns. The seed of God's kingdom was planted when Jesus came as a baby. And it's been growing for 2,000 years. And it will continue to grow until he comes again and establishes his kingdom here on earth. That sounds good, right? That sounds hopeful. It's a message of hope. But here's the problem. The arrival of a king always provokes a response. The reason for that is that every single throne is a single seater, right? And so if you're going to climb up, somebody's got to climb off. And ever since Jesus' first advent, ever since he first came, humanity has been left with the question, if Jesus is God incarnate, if he's God in human flesh, come to make all things new, come to make all that is wrong right, then how will I respond to him? Well, Will I reject his rule? Will I ignore it? Or will I receive him in faith? So as we see Jesus, the king of kings, come to earth to shepherd his people, and these first two chapters of Matthew, we look now in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, and we see that even as a child, he provokes some incredible responses. So our outline this morning is this. We're going to look at first just at some context and who King Jesus is in verses 1 to 2. And then we're going to look at a few responses. First, we'll look at Herod's response to Jesus in verse 3 to 8. And then we'll look at the people's response to Jesus in verse 3. And then we'll look at the wise men's response to Jesus in verses 9 to 12. So some context and who is King Jesus, verses 1 to 2. Herod's response, 3 to 8. The people's response, 
verse 3, and then the wise men's response in verses 9 to 12. So let's get to work. Let's look at the first point this morning of context in Jesus' kingship in verses 1 and 2. So Matthew writes, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. So do you see the setting that Matthew alerts us to? Do you notice that? All this takes place in the days of Herod the king. And for you history buffs, that's actually really important because this is the first little point of context that we have to locate the story of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. And it's an important one to understand because for us who live today, it's possible, I think, for some of us to wander around the Christmas market or to go down to Granville Island and maybe see the odd nativity scene. And as we see it, we're tempted to impose our cultural location on history on this story. We see the festive lights and the peaceful time in Vancouver, and we think, oh, yeah, that's what's going on back in this story in Matthew. But it's not. Herod, to be clear, is not a good guy. The average Jew hated him. You know why? Well, first of all, he was an imposter. He's not actually Jewish. Jewish. And he'd, ha- he'd actually usurped his throne illegitimately through political intrigue and backroom deals. When things were getting bad for him politically at an earlier time before this, he escaped death and he ran away to Rome and he hung out with his buddy Octavian who became the first Caesar Augustus. And Caesar Augustus gave Herod an army and said, why don't you go back and you can rule for us. So this non-Jewish guy comes back to Judea and takes the throne by force. And I don't know if you've noticed this, but whenever someone takes a throne by force or takes something illegitimately, it makes them pretty jumpy. Maybe, maybe you've watched a few mafia movies, a few gang movies, right? And those guys, if, you'd, you know, if it's kind of a realistic gang movie or mafia movie, you realize they're not sleeping well at night. You know, they're worried that what's been done, uh, what's, what they've done to someone is going to be done to them. They're concerned they're going to wake up with the horse's head and the blankets. Right? Um, but that's what, that's what Herod was like. And he was known to be a jumpy guy and that he was murderous as a result to the, point that, uh, to the point that Caesar Augustus, who gave Herod his throne and his army to get it with, once said of Herod, he said, I would rather be his, his pig than his son. And that's actually a Greek pun. So you're going to get really nerdy here. The Greek pun is, I'd rather be his hus than his huias. And the idea is that Herod, who has usurped the throne and is pretending to be Jewish, pretending to be Jewish, to curry favor with his subjects, is not going to eat any pork. He won't kill a pig. But if he senses that his sons, which is, which is what happened, if he senses that my sons are going to try and conspire against me, I have no problem killing my kids. This is the kind of guy that Herod is. And when Herod realizes in the verses following our passage this morning that he missed Jesus, he didn't get him, you know what he does? He makes an order, sends people out to kill everyone to and under who is a male child in Bethlehem and the surrounding regions. Just try and throw a wide net and catch Jesus in it. He's an awful, awful man. And when we read, in the days of Herod the king, it reminds us that the Bible story of salvation is not like your upcoming, uh, upcoming vacation. Right? It's desired, you're looking forward to it, but really it's unnecessary. Although I realize some of you might sell it to your employer as a mental health thing to get a few more days tacked onto it, 
right? But it, it's not necessary like this salvation is necessary. This setting reminds us that the coming of Jesus is about the dawn of a salvation that humanity needs, that is crucial, that we are longing for. So we might ask, who is Jesus? Why does his arrival matter then? Well, in the verses that came before this, uh, Jake last week preached on them, and he showed us a few things about this Jesus that were incredible. Number one, he showed us that, that Jesus and his coming is the dawn of a new creation. He showed us that in just the way that, that Matthew opens up the birth narrative by talking about the genesis of Jesus, kind of uh, echoing that first book of Genesis, and when God created all things in the Bible. This is about a new creation. And second, we know that this Jesus is the presence of God with man. Matthew one twenty three is what Jake showed us last week. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. We know that for the first time in human history, the, the distance between the creator and the creature has collapsed as God comes in human flesh to make himself known to us. You can shake his hand. You can give him an embrace. You can see his character lived as he walks and talks with us as a human being. And then third, we saw that this is Jesus who is the one who is the savior of our sins. Look at Matthew uh, chapter 1, verse 21. Jake showed us this. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. And that's important because in the the midst of, of the political turmoil of our world, in the midst of you being nervous about spending a whole day with your in-laws this month, in the midst of all the awful things that are going on here, we need to remember, as has been said time after time after time from this pulpit, that the, that the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. Our sin is at the core of this, and Jesus came to save us from it. So new creation, God's presence, salvation from our sin. All of these things are just aspects of Jesus' arrival as our perfect king. And in fact, Jesus' kingship is so significant that somehow it was recognized by non-Jewish wise men. Look at verses 1 to 2 again. I'm going to pick it up partway through. Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Who were these wise men? Does this song, We Three Kings of Orient, shed any light for us? You know the one, We Three Kings of Orient. Okay. Um, I'll stop. <clears throat> the song is not that helpful. We don't know that there were three. There's no number mentioned. And we don't know that they were kings. They actually are told, they are explained as being something else. They are magi. We know from studying this time period and from other parts of the Bible that Magi were these, these wise men. They lived in this ancient Eastern culture, and they were the kind of people that, that kings would like to have around them, giving them counsel, giving them guidance. They were the people, if you remember, uh, if you were here for our Daniel series way back, that, that, were, that Daniel was mingling with in, in, in Persia when he was there with them. And, um, uh, and these guys were like the philosophers of the age. They had access to the ancient wisdom of the time, the ancient manuscripts, uh, and some, some divination and some things that they would practice to try and understand and interpret the science. So how did these wise men, do you think, hear about Jesus? It's a legitimate question, I think. How did they know about him? What wisdom did they have access to that caused them to seek for Jesus? Well, the main civilizations for the past several hundred years prior to this 
event were Assyria, and Babylon, and Persia. And these were the nations that the Jewish people before this had been exiled to. So they had spent time in these nations long before they came back to Judea. And this is the same geographical area that these wise men then had come to, to see Jesus in Judea. So because of that, it's not unlikely that, that these particular wise men were familiar with the Jewish Bible. Isn't that incredible? And alongside their understanding, I think, of some of the Bible, God worked this miracle. And these wise men then saw Jesus star in the east, and they began following it, following this miraculous event in the heavens. They put two and two together, and they thought, we want to see this Jesus. So I don't know if you're like me, but when I think about that, it makes me curious, what texts from the Bible do you think that they were reading? What texts did they have in their mind that they were looking through on camel's back as they were willing to travel months in time to get to where they were? You know, I wouldn't be surprised if it was a text like Isaiah 9, verses 2 to 7. Look at that with me. This is a prophecy about Jesus coming before he came. It says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden... And the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For, this is, that's all the preamble. The reason? To us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. What a text. What a text. What a promised ruler. Can you imagine being these guys living in their ancient culture and the turmoil of the age on camel's back, looking through the pages of Scripture and longing to meet Jesus, who is coming, as they trekked out to Jerusalem. Would you feel the excitement that they did? Do you feel it now? The anticipation that Jesus has come. These magi had heard the whispers of an ancient people through their ancient texts, and they interpreted the signs rightly, and they'd come to see Jesus. But as we transition and move towards our responses, if we look to, verse, to the responses now, we need to realize that even the arrival of the Prince of Peace is disruptive. Whenever a new ruler enters the arena, arena the existing power structures react to it. Right? And there's a conflict. There's a fight for dominance. And I know that's a really negative image is probably for some, of, for some of you guys to think about dominance and, and fighting for power. And for us right now, we need to expose something because I think in our age, we look at power, we look at authority, we often look at leadership and we see those things negatively, don't we? And we, we're, we're question, we question their legitimacy. We see them as dangerous and the cause of our problems. But that's not true, actually. Authority and rule and leadership are not the cause of our problems. The sin that is in the people that are in leadership and authority, that's the cause of the problem. 
But how would you respond, do you think, if the God who the Bible says is love came down to rule? Would that be different? That is who Jesus is. He is the king of the universe, born in a manger. The king of the universe, completely God and completely human, perfectly and eternally happy, existing in love and fellowship with the Father and the Spirit, demonstrating his humility and his gentleness and his compassion and love by being born as a human being and coming to us. That's beautiful. That's incredible that God would take on human flesh and come to us. The theologian, theologian Donald McLeod, he talked about the incredible love and humility of Jesus' first advent, his incarnation this way. He said this. This is Jesus. Jesus lived his incarnate life experiencing pain and poverty and temptation, witnessing squalor and brutality, hearing obscenities and profanities and the hopeless cry of the oppressed. He lived not in sublime detachment or in ascetic isolation, but with us as the fellow man of all men. Crowded, busy, harassed, stressed, and molested. No large estate gave him space. No financial capital guaranteed his daily bread. No personal staff protected him from interruptions, and no power or influence protected him from injustice. He saved us from alongside of us. You'd think that that sort of king would be worth rejoicing about. It would be worth coming and worshiping with the wise men. And it should make us rejoice, but it often doesn't because of our sin. As we see him as a threat, as we respond to him negatively. Just look at our second point and how Herod responds to Jesus in verses 3 to 8. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may go and worship him. Look at Herod's reaction. The perfect king of the universe is born to right what is wrong in the world. And what does Herod do in verse 3? He's troubled by it. And it's pretty clear as the story unfolds that a troubled Herod is not like you in the morning when you've missed your first coffee. Right? Troubled Herod is willing to kill to become untroubled. So he starts plotting. And after hearing about this prophecy, as he talked to the, the religious rulers of the day about Bethlehem, the place of Jesus' birth, Herod summons the wise men, and he tries to use them as his spies for his personal seek-and-destroy mission. You can just hear in verse 8 his lips dripping with honey and flattery and this devious motive. Look at verse 8. Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Ooh, it's sinister. It's sinister. He's not seeking to worship. He's seeking to murder. But before, before you get all judgy with Herod, is it possible that you and I react to Jesus in a similar way? Is it possible that our reaction to him is not so different? 
You know, my reaction to Jesus, I'll be the first one to put my hand up here. It's not so different than Herod's. This is a moment of personal confession. It's sin and tell this morning, so I'll go first. So this week, this week, Arian's not been sleeping the last couple weeks, actually. It's been a, been a hard few weeks, and um, two in the morning at our place often feels like World War III, right? Bombs are going off. The neighbors have all moved out, and, uh, <clears throat> and, and here we are fighting with Arian, and I don't have sleep, and if you know anything about me, if you talk to Heather, she'll tell you that Brent without sleep's not a good thing, or Brent gets his grumpiest when he's trying to preserve his sleep. That's true. That's me, and, um, and in the midst of all this, my fault got in an argument with Heather, and I am now angry and mad and bitter at my wife. I went to bed angry that day. I woke up angry the next morning. And in my sin, did I run to the Savior King who could help me? And in my sin, did I turn to Jesus who, who became human and understands my struggle with anger more than I do? Did I turn to him for help and for grace and for the forgiveness that he's given me so I could give that forgiveness and love to Heather? No. You know what I did? I saw Jesus' presence in my life, his reign as king in my life, as a personal threat to my perceived right to be angry. I wanted to hang on to my sin. Even though if I had held on to it, it would eventually fester and destroy my marriage. And surely it would have wrecked my relationship with my son. You know, in the end, I'm not that different than Herod. And I don't know that you are either. In this Christmas season, as the pressures have been mounting, again, as you're looking at that, that day with the in-laws, as you're grieving the loss of a child or a father, as you're looking at just all these realities and, you, and the, the pressure's coming and the pressure cooker is, is cranking up in intensity and your sin is exposed because of it, do you find that you're hanging on with desperation to your throne to keep Jesus off of it? Are you hanging on to your sin even though it's making you miserable? You know, someone once said that sin makes you insane. And it does. It makes you fight the only good God who is love and who's come in humility to die for you and for his creation. Who's come to bring forgiveness and to rescue us from our plight. It makes you fight him. Give up on your sin. Get off of your throne this season. Receive grace from this humble king. You know, the best thing for you to do right now would be to abdicate. Get on your knees. But here's a question. Is Herod's response the only response that people might make to Jesus? Is it the only way that we respond to him? I don't think so. We look at verse 3 again, and we'll see our third point, the people's reaction. So Herod's troubled. <laughs> we just got a few words here. Five words. And all Jerusalem with him. It's interesting. That's an interesting passage. When the text says all Jerusalem was troubled with Herod, a number of scholars point out that the people were troubled about Jesus, like Herod was. Why? Well, they weren't trying to preserve their throne in the same way that Herod was, I don't think. But you know what they were trying to preserve? The status quo. Because life wasn't good for them. They realized that. It's been a hard, it's been a hard season here. They, they know that they're not in a, a beautiful time. But there has been a small eddy of peace now that Herod was ruling, even if it was illegitimate. 
And they knew the prophecies, but did they really want to, to get on board with a king that might bring a revolution? They didn't want to get on board with a king who was going to change the status quo. They didn't want to disturb it. So as we consider our own reactions to Jesus, maybe this one lands a little closer home to you. Maybe you're not hostile to Jesus. Maybe you don't want to kill him. I hope you don't want to kill him. Maybe you happily acknowledge truths about Jesus this season. Maybe you walk through the mall this season and you hear the Christmas music playing and you're like, oh yeah, this is great. I love these songs. This is good stuff. I'm glad that Jesus is being proclaimed on those speakers. But your embrace of Jesus' rule on the throne of your life, it just stops right there. And you prefer Jesus as a plastic figure from the nativity story, and the nativity scene that you can kind of plop in your pocket and carry around. And if you lose him, it doesn't matter that much. It's okay. But God forbid that he would come to life and take hold of your life and rule over you in a way that makes you uncomfortable or demands more from you than you are willing to give. Sure, you might think Jesus is good. He's God. He's love. He's the Prince of Peace. But when it comes down to it, Jesus, please don't disturb me. Please don't interfere too much with my life. I like it the way that it is. Have you ever felt like that? Again, I have. D.A. Carson put this sort of don't upset the status quo approach to Jesus this way. He's talking about the gospel, but it applies perfectly to what we're saying here. He says, I would like to buy about $3 worth of gospel, please. Not too much. Just enough to make me happy. But not so much that I get addicted. I don't want so much gospel that I learn to really hate covetousness and lust. I certainly don't want so much that I start to love my enemies, cherish self-denial, and contemplate missionary service in some alien culture or planting a church in East Vancouver. I want ecstasy, not repentance. I want transcendence, not transformation. I would like to be cherished by some nice, forgiving, broad-minded people, but I myself don't want to love those from different races, especially if they smell. I would like enough gospel to make my family secure and my children well-behaved, but not so much that I find my ambitions redirected or my giving too greatly enlarged. I would like about $3 worth of gospel, please. Is that convicting? That gets me. Is that how we look at this king? Is that how we look at Jesus this season? The God-man who's come to take our sin on his shoulders, come to bring us eternal life, come to, to reconcile us to God and to make all things new. Do we do that sort of awkward, like, hug avoidance thing with Jesus' gospel embrace? You know, he's coming at you and you're like, you know, that's a bit too much, Jesus. Just, you can give, give me a side hug. I'd like that better. The people of Jerusalem, like we so often are, were troubled by a king who could make all the difference. They were content to live in the status quo and they didn't want to be bothered by the grace and goodness and the disruptive, disruptive love of a king who is perfect and who would take the place of ruler in their lives. Even though that would be far better for them. So what about you? Do you follow Jesus just as long as it's convenient? Or are you willing to follow him as Lord no matter what it costs you because he is incomparably good. Jesus came, he came 2,000 years ago as the incomparable king, but Herod fought him. And the people really wanted to preserve that status quo. But incredibly, the people who we'd least expect to receive him, the pagan wise men from the east, 
they come to him and respond the way that they were created to, in worship. Look at our last point, the wise men's response in chapter 2, verses 9 to 12. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they were departed to their own country by another way. These wise men are here for us in this passage to show us exactly the right way to respond to the first coming of Jesus. They seek him out diligently. They leave loved ones behind. They trek out on camels with joy and eager excitement to greet the king of kings born. They take these lavish gifts at great cost themselves in order to have something to offer to Jesus. To offer God incarnate. Come to earth to fix this broken world. And they arrive and they fall down before him and they worship him. King Jesus, come as a baby who suffered, who later was crucified, who died, who was buried, who rose again. The one who reigns on high and who is coming again. The one who shows us, shows us his love and his compassion by entering our suffering with us in order to save us from it. They worship him. Incredibly, his own people didn't receive him, but foreign magi did. Let me show you something here. The bittersweet rejection of Jesus in the manger by his own people, it anticipates his worship by all. The bookends of Matthew's gospel are both this non-Jewish situation of worship. The first part here, we have the wise men who aren't Jewish coming to worship Jesus. But then if you go to Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20, you know that the mission, as the first Jewish group of people believe, they go on mission so that the rest of the world can come and hear about Jesus and worship him too. Look at Matthew 28, 18 to 20. Jesus says after he's been resurrected, he's about to return into heaven. He says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them, teaching them to... Observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And he's still with us. He's with us now. And there's another set of bookings even beyond this, because the book of Matthew, at the first advent of Jesus with the wise men worshiping and this, this proclamation to preach the gospel so that all nations will worship Jesus, that's, that's one book end. The other one is the end of the story, at the second advent when Jesus comes. Look at Revelation 7, 9 to 12. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. 
And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Jesus here in the manger is that eternal king. The king of the end of the age has come and he is worthy of your worship. Jesus has come, and we live in the time between his coming as the gospel goes forth, and sinful men and you, like you and I are offered forgiveness and love and peace, comfort in our shame, life with God now by his spirit as we anticipate the fullness of peace on earth when he returns. So as we close, let me leave you with this. Do you know that there's an expiry date on all, of your, on all of your success. I think some of you today, here this morning, might live under the illusion that your success will last, that your kingdom will continue. And you haven't come to terms yet with the reality that your ability and your health are limited. The Bible says that we are like grass, we're like dust. We're here for a little bit and we're gone. And one day the heart attack's going to come, and it will be over. For some of you, Christmas is a season, on the other hand, or I'm sorry, on the same moment here, uh, Christmas is a season of incredible reveling and joy. Enjoying your own success, though. You don't even blink when we talk about Jesus this way. Because your kingdom right now feels pretty great. You don't really feel the need for him. And you believe this illusion that your success, that your kingdom will last. So that's maybe some of you on one hand. On the other hand, some of you, others of you maybe feel like, man, Christmas is this awful thing. Because it reminds me how broken I am. It reminds me that no matter how hard I try, my family just won't get along. It reminds me that no matter how hard I try, I can't, I can't keep the disease at bay. Reminds you that no matter how hard you try, no matter what you do, the success that you feel like you need is always just out of reach. So whether you're under the illusion of your own success this morning or painfully aware of your failure, recognize that you are a king or a queen who is unable to bring lasting peace. Wherever we're at this morning, we need to be confronted with Jesus in this passage who is the king who has come, the prince of peace who has come. And right now he's offering us his love. He's offering us his forgiveness. He's offering us his grace and hope that he will return in fullness of peace. And there's no better day than right now to evaluate your response towards him. What are you going to do? Are you ignoring him? Are you trying to preserve your own throne? Are you hoping that he doesn't ask too much of you? Or are you doing the only thing that makes any sense? Worshiping him with great joy as you serve him in adoration alongside of the Christians that have lived for the last 2,000 years in joy as his kingdom grows and expands, willingly laying down your life to do what he's asked you to do to praise him, to live for his glory, so you're ready when he's coming again. He is coming again. And one day soon, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Are we ready for him?
Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we come to you with great joy. Uh, thank you. Thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you that we don't have to live in the, the unending, deep, black winter of human sin because Jesus has come. Thank you that your love is felt here, even in this church, that you're at work in this body by your spirit. Uh, thank you that you are working in our hearts, causing us to love you, to live for Jesus, to serve him with joy. Oh God, I ask that you would be working now. Make us more faithful. Help us to get off our thrones and serve you. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.